parts of Revelation 16, 17, and 18. Every time I get into this study in preparation, there are just new things just come flooding out. And this Revelation is quite unique. As we've mentioned before, it's not really narrative. It's an account of visions that John has been given and he has shared with us by the instructions and inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus. And they give us views, points of views, perspectives on God's judgment throughout all history and in coming history in our near future. It was John's distant future, although he did anticipate it at any moment. And it's our future. I'm convinced it's near future, but it could be a little more distant than our lifetime. But we must not doubt it. This whole sermon is called Judgment Upon Apostasy. We'll be looking at a few things this morning that are not really akin to stories, but they kind of open up our eyes and our understanding to some of the tools that John is sharing in these accounts, these visions that he has given us. Allow me to pray, and then we'll just kind of work through this together. A little unusual, but... Uh, in a few moments, all shall be revealed. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful again for your word and its power and its truth. Open up our minds and our understandings. Help your servant to be clear as we look at these things together. Because once we understand them, they do help us. They do cause us to trust. They do dispel fear and doubt in our hearts and our minds. When we can see your hand at work, we can be encouraged no matter what happens. So help us this day. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. In Revelation chapter 16, John describes God's wrath. We've been through some of this before. I'm just going to do a quick review and then we're going to touch on a few points. John describes God's wrath being poured out upon the world. These bowls of wrath kind of depict or kind of introduced what, what is escalating in the judgment upon the world and upon the world's sin as we get closer to the coming of our Lord Jesus. The first bowl that John described in chapter 16 was a curse of sores upon people's bodies. The second bowl, the seas become like blood. The third bowl, fresh water becomes like blood. The fourth bowl, people are scorched by the sun. The fifth bowl, there's darkness upon the whole world. The sixth bowl, Euphrates River is dried up and demons are released. Now, all of these things, we need to be very careful how we understand them and how we interpret them Will we see these actual events happen? You may disagree, but I would not think so. It could happen. 
it would be quite remarkable if it does happen because it's happened once before. John is reminding everyone who believes God and follows Jesus, everyone should remember how the Lord delivered his people from Egypt because these plagues he mentions here look very similar to the ones that God poured out upon Egypt when Pharaoh would not let his people go. So in this day and time that John is writing, and in our day and time, when we see Babylon, you remember we've already discussed this ad infinitum, that this whole world, Scripture talks about as Babylon. When we see Babylon oppressing the people of God, when we see them persecuting the people of God, John is telling them then as he tells us now. Remember how the Lord delivered you from Egypt. He will deliver you again. He's going to curse these people who are cursing you, as he promised to do through our father Abraham in Genesis 12. And he shall deliver us again. That's what is going on here. When we look at Revelation 6.12, he kind of emphasizes that, talking about this sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up to prepare, prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, so many people interpret that as, oh, there's going to be war. The kings from the east are going to come. Well, who are the kings from the east? John is reminding Israel again, John is reminding the early believers again what happened to Israel when they were in captivity, taken into bondage in the city of Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. You can turn to Daniel chapter 5 and read the account. Of, most of you are very familiar with it. Read the account of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, who was throwing a party in his palace Scripture is very polite. It was very likely an orgy. Everyone was drunk. He brought in the cups and the dishes, the, the, the fixtures from the temple that they had confiscated from Jerusalem temple in order to use them to serve during their party. And you remember when King Belshazzar was drinking, he looked up and he saw a hand writing on the wall and it terrified him. It was that very night that Cyrus and his armies came to Babylon. Babylon was a fortified city. They had walls so wide you could race chariots across them. The only way other than the protected gates, the only way into the city was through a gate that a river flowed, where a gate, a, a path where a river flowed underneath the wall. And the armies, the army engineers of Cyrus's Persian army diverted that river so that they could get access through that dry riverbed into the city and take Babylon. 
they entered the city that night, and the Bible says that Babylon, the king Belshazzar died that very night. I believe that's what John is talking about when he mentions this, kings from the east. Again, he is reminding the believers that we shall be delivered from this suffering. So when we read through these things in Revelation, most of you are, you've heard so many different interpretations and most of them follow the same kind of path and most of them point to a great war on a piece of real estate over in Israel. We want to be very careful. We want to look at this with wisdom as God says we should. These bowls of wrath depict or illustrate God's wrath poured out upon an unbelieving world. The bowls are also a reminder of the coming deliverance. Coming deliverance on, for those who believe and trust Christ as their Lord and their Savior and their King. Even so, John tells us that before our deliverance, evil will continue to escalate. He's very honest. Revelation 16, 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. He talks about this demonic spirits performing signs. Well, we can understand what demonic spirits might be. The force of evil for certain. But we keep looking for signs. What are the, usually when someone talks about a spiritual sign or some sort of indicator that gives us some sort of direction, we look for something good. But we need to be very careful because it does not have to be a good sign. How do you know when a demon is in control? You look for bad signs. Right? Isn't that reasonable? What kind of signs? Just a quick cursory touch upon a few things. With respect to Jeff Foxworthy. If your nation or country recruits suicide bombers, here's your sign. If your nation or country protects the privileged class and turns a blind eye to evidence of pedophilia or substance abuse, here's your sign. If your nation or country secretly participates in child trafficking, here's your sign. If your nation or country promotes laws that allow women to murder their unborn babies, here's your sign. If the politicians in woke churches in your land promote and encourage the acceptability of grown men dressed as drag queens for children's story hour in schools and public libraries, here's your sign. 
why would God not judge this world? Why would we not expect him to bring chastisement upon Babylon? Demonic spirits performing signs. And these are just a few. I could go on, and you probably could too. But it would just be discouraging. It is certainly frightening. But we have a word of promise in verse 15 of chapter 16. We looked at this last week. The Lord stops right there. Look, my wrath is coming. It's being poured out. Evil spirits are going to fight back and resist even more. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. God calls all of us to be ready. All of this, everything that is happening is under God's power and providential authority. I think it was quite appropriate that we looked at Habakkuk last week in chapter 1. It starts out quite clearly. Habakkuk lived and served during, just before the fall of Jerusalem. The king of Babylon had come in and put pressure on Jerusalem and Benjamin the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes left in Israel. Israel. Northern Israel had already been conquered by Assyria. But here's the rise of Babylon. And Habakkuk calls out to the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong destruction and violence are before me strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted this was Habakkuk's wail to the Lord and the Lord responds look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told God told Habakkuk everything you're seeing is under my control and everything that we see today is under his control we need to trust his word and not be afraid. We need to be confident in his promise. He will deliver. As things seem to get worse and seem to get more frightening, it just proves his word is true. What was God getting ready to do? In Habakkuk's day, he was getting ready to bring judgment. What is God getting ready to do again? In verse 16, they assembled them at a place in the Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Armageddon, we understand to be the final battle. 
but I don't think it's going to be limited to an ancient battlefield in Israel. I believe that John's references to to Armageddon or the Valley of Megiddo is an analogy that points to a final conflict. We look back in chapter 16, about the seventh bowl, chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. Babylon was destroyed. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And the great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. So what is God about to do? He is about to bring judgment again. We can trust his word. We can believe him. We shall be delivered. John references Armageddon as an analogy that points to the final conflict, the final judgment. It will be evident. It will be apparent to the whole world. There will be nothing secret about it. As we move quickly, and I will try and be quick, Revelation 17, 1. Let's read the first two verses. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of a great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. We've talked about this inappropriate person, that's putting it politely, this prostitute before. We look at three quick points as we finish up today. Judgment upon the apostate church, judgment in the form of diminishing influence, and judgment as her favor with the world turns quickly. I would like to define the apostate church so that we are clear. We need to understand that there is, under the full banner of Christianity, a visible church. It is represented by every congregation, every church building, on every street corner, in every city, in every nation, in every country, in every county, everywhere you see someone who has a cross or the name church or the name Christian or some denomination that is the visible church. But the visible church is not always true to God or faithful to God. There are many congregations who have already compromised 
There are many who are already teaching harmful things, untrue things, compromising things. There are many churches who are denying Scripture. But there is, in contrast to that, a universal invisible church whom God knows and recognizes. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is the true faithful church of believers. Now, the visible church, too many times when we talk about church, we're talking about New Testament times since Pentecost. But church comes from a Gaelic word, ecclesia, the called out ones, comes from a Greek word. And there is a Hebrew equivalent, although it escapes my mind right now, that is used in the Old Testament for the called of God. They, too, in the Old Testament, could be considered church. Both churches, both peoples of God, existed in the Old Testament, usually represented by Israel. There was visible Israel, and then there was the universal invisible Israel, the faithful ones of God, the prophets who died giving their lives, faithful who were true to the Lord, the ones who were talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. All of Israel, all of Israel was not saved. God used Israel as a channel to protect his word and his truth and to display his power and his purpose and his plan. But just because you were born Hebrew, as a descendant of Abraham, does not mean that you were guaranteed salvation. Salvation for the Old Testament Israelite was the same as salvation for the New Testament believer. Faith in the promise of a substitutionary atonement, recognizing that our sin needs cleansing. Both the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer are saved by faith. So both the visible church and the universal invisible church existed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They exist in modern times. One has fallen away from God, the other strives to be pure. The visible church pretty much has fallen away from God. That's the apostate church. The apostate church historically had previously been useful to political governments of the world. We can look at that as we study closely Israel and their cooperation with the governments that seem to overthrow them, particularly their cooperation with the Roman government. In Old Testament times, there was cooperation with Assyria, who conquered northern Israel, and Egypt, and Babylon, and Persia, and then Rome. And the Lord describes, I believe he's talking about Israel as well, when he describes this woman in Revelation 17. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, 
holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And they saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. John uses some words that we are not comfortable talking about in public. This prostitute, sexual immorality, abominations. But that's what God uses to describe infidelity against him. Anytime we follow an idol, God sees that as immorality. Anytime we worship anything other than him, God sees that as infidelity. And he is saying that Old Testament Israel and much of the New Testament church is guilty of such practice, such immorality, such infidelity, because they would rather have the favor of this world and the protection and the influence of this world than the grace and favor of God. And for much of our history, we have seen, particularly with the Catholic denominations, <clears throat> a cooperation with governments in the world. Great wealth has been accumulated, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Are there people who are saved and true in these churches? Yes, there are some who I believe are truly saved. But the denominations are teaching heresy and works righteousness. Salvation comes by faithfulness to God plus works or trust in God plus works. And we are not convinced that scripture teaches that. We're saved by faith in Christ alone, through faith alone, upon his word alone. There's nothing to add to it. It's all Christ and none of our works. Revelation 17, 18 says, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. He's equivocating this corrupt, apostate, unfaithful church with the nation of Babylon, giving fair warning that she, the unfaithful church, will be judged as well. May I say it? They've been sleeping in the same bed. They are as one. Self-exalting, arrogant, compromised, could be considered a traitor and betrayer. This so-called church has used authority and influence to permit and encourage decadence and depravity. You have seen it. I have seen it. It is happening today. The 
compromised church allows anyone in doing anything they please without any repentance, without any acknowledgement of their spiritual need. They have a very confused and depraved and twisted idea or definition of what love of God is. You cannot have love without law. You cannot have faithfulness without If you're going to love someone and be faithful, there must be some sort of recognized law that is broken when there is infidelity in relationship. The so-called church, as we just said, has used authority and influence to permit and encourage decadence and depravity. So there is judgment upon the apostate church very quickly, there is judgment in the form of diminishing influence, and judgment as her favor with the world turns quickly away. Revelation 18, beginning at verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, the compromising nations that had cooperated with the church, the false church, the apostate church, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit of which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? A lot of people have read this and been a little bit confused about how is this associated with the church. It must be the city of Babylon. But we, I'm convinced that the city of Babylon and the apostate church or the apostate organization of Believers, both Old and New Testament, are the city of Babylon. They are so tightly woven together that they cannot be separated. I am not, and I want to say this carefully, I am not anti Israel. 
I am not anti-Semitic. I do not hate the Jews. I pray for Jerusalem. I pray for the people of Israel. But you should begin to realize that what you are seeing in the news today is coming from the continued remnant of Old Testament Israel as they moved into the 21st century. What you see in the news today are people calling for Israel to seek aggression against people in the Gaza Strip and against Hamas and against their enemies. Not only that, they are there are perceived problems and even resentment against Jewish bankers, Jewish banks, and the merchants. All of this fulfills the text we just read. The apostate believers who once were considered part of Israel are now part of the world merchants associations and banks and a lot of people think that they are in control this is one of the reasons why Germany rose up against them so much it's why they were hated so much and why that seems to be sticking its ugly head up again even now What we just read of this picture of this woman who's who is losing everything is for telling us that people will mourn at her destruction and her the depression that she's going to bring upon herself, the financial ruin that she will bring upon herself. Every proud in heart, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Proverbs 18.5. The influences of the apostate woman talked about in Revelation are so clearly tied to the world, to Babylon, they cannot be separated, but they will both be judged for their apostasy, for their unbelief, for their sin, for their unrighteousness. Judgment upon the apostate church. Judgment in the form of diminishing influence. And judgment as her favor with the world turns quickly. She once had favor with the world, but it's going to turn around and be kind of sudden. Verse 16 in Revelation 17, John describes this beast with ten horns that you saw. The beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So we see that this judgment will come 
orchestrated by God, ordained by him through the world powers that we know as Babylon, they're going to strike her down. The unfaithful church, the unfaithful believer, whether they are Jewish or whether it's unfaithful Christian church, and I'm almost convinced that no one knows how much money they have, but I'm convinced the Catholic Church is part of the world mark, world banking society as well. They have massive amounts of money. Judgment upon the apostate church, judgment in the form of diminishing influence, judgment as her favor with the world turns quickly away. Allow me to return to the book of Habakkuk. Let me just read a few verses there. I think this helps us understand what is going on now because it's happened before. The prophet asks the Lord in prayer, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long shall I cry violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you Idly look at wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. Sounds very much like modern times. And then God responds. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, they're more fierce than the, ever than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And kings they, at kings they scoff. And at rulers they laugh. They laugh at the fortress. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So God answers Habakkuk's prayer. This is what I am about to do. You complain about the violence, I'm sending more. 
we could almost pray the same thing, Lord, how long, how long before this is over? How long will you, before you deliver? And God says, it's very near. I'm going to send some more. But we can trust and rest upon his promise that he will deliver us. Behold, I am coming quickly as a thief. Again, the prophet Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So what God did for Israel and for the prophet Habakkuk, 600 years before Christ was born, he is doing for us today. Let us trust him. Let us be aware of the apostasy that is in this world today. And let us be faithful to our Lord who has been faithful to us. Shall we pray? Father, we are thankful for your word and its power and its help. And we ask this day that you might help us follow you. Encourage us by your word and its truth that we may not fear, that we may trust always. In Christ's name we pray, amen.